Welcome to Deep North with your host, Rachel Nolan. Hi, everyone. Um, welcome to this uh, Mikel Institute webinar with uh, our special guest, Lech Lane, about his quarterly essay that just came out last Monday. Um, it's called Top Blokes, the Larrikin Myth, Class and Power. Um, Lech Blaine is um, a writer from country Queensland who has been pretty damn prolific in the last few years, um, writing about a range of issues, but essentially putting a sort of well-informed Queensland perspective to the world. He's writing about class, about power, about family, and he recently wrote um, a tremendous memoir, although it's a difficult story, called um, called Car Crash, about an accident that um, he was involved in uh, at the end of his school years. But we'll talk about something that's, um, well, in some sense is easier today, and that is this um, this quarterly essay that Lech has written and which has just come out. Um, as I said, I think it's a wonderful piece of writing. I also just think it's tremendous that the discussion about class in Australia is um is coming alive and is being reinvigorated. So, like, I want to kind of go to you first. Um, would you just tell us a little bit about, you know, kind of your your personal backstory? It's not usual for a young man still in his 20s to start down the path of being a writer. So I kind of want to know a little bit about your background in, um, in Toowoomba and um, tell, us what, tell us where you're coming from and why you decided to be a writer. Uh, yeah, I had a... I had a pretty weird and wonderful upbringing. Uh, it, my parents were, though, my, my dad was from Ipswich originally, so he was um, a jack of all trades. Did a, he smashed his hip as a teenager? He was working at the Ipswich Abattoir, and so that meant um, all of his family and mates were all sort of, you know, what you would traditionally consider working class. They're all members of unions. Like um, grandfather was a blacksmith and a, and a uh, trade union leader in Ipswich. And so dad, purely by, by virtue of, of his injury, he spent six months in hospital. He actually had to go out and he, he didn't have a high school education. He dropped out after grade eight. Uh, so he basically became a jack of all trades and started doing all these like uh, little small businesses and just picking up stuff. And then this is all a long time before I arrived. I, w- I was born when um, he was 43, mum was 38. They hadn't been able to have any kids. Mum had had six miscarriages, so they'd fostered a bunch of kids. Um, and by that point, they'd travelled from Ipswich where my parents met uh, in a backyard on the same street, I think, as uh, Bill Hayden's mother-in-law. Uh, and so they met in the backyard. I think the the uh, the woman whose house it was, Ivy, she was the president of the local women's mining auxiliary. Her husband, John, was a coal miner and uh, a World War II veteran. Um, mum and dad met, moved to a place called Rosedale up near Bundaberg to run a pub. Then they went to Chinchilla. Then they went to Wandai. Then they went to Toowoomba. We had a pub in Oki. Um, and they ended up slowly but surely, like it didn't, uh, they had a few, um, I think they went bankrupt once and sort of didn't, didn't do too well out of some of the pubs. And then, um, by the time we got to Toowoomba and I was about four or five, they got a pub and did, um, did pretty well out of it and sort of, yeah, I, I had a really a quite different upbringing even to what my older siblings did because they were quite a lot older than me. Um, and so by the time I was 11 or so, I was, you know, I was going to a Catholic boys' school in Toowoomba. Uh, we lived in a 
a house in the suburbs of the western suburbs of Toowoomba, which I thought was like just an absolute palace because we'd never lived anywhere like that before. We never lived anywhere that had, you know, fans on the ceilings or like sliding doors or anything like that. Like, and so, yeah, I vividly remember this sort of moment where it was like, oh, we're like, we're, we're rich. Like we can, we buy new, we're buying new furniture and I get to buy clothes from city beach and stuff. And so it was, uh, it, well, I wasn't obviously analyzing it from a uh, critical perspective at the time, but I, I, I did always, have a sense of politics because my dad had named me after Lech Walesa, um, as a tribute to his dad. And so I I'd always had like a little bit of a sense of history and of politics, even on a surface level, I used to sort of pour over the encyclopedias and find Lech Walesa in, in there. And I, um, I'd look at all the, the Australian prime ministers and I always had an idea that I would one day um, go into politics. I was a, uh, a cousin oh, of Alfie okay. Langer from Ipswich and I was a, but I was a shit house rugby league player. So my like, most obvious way that I could compensate for that. And I, I thought in my dad's eyes would be to become the prime minister of Australia. And so that's sort of what I, that's sort of what I imagined that I would um, hopefully end up doing uh, as a very sort of like e- egotistical uh, 10 or 11 year old. Oh, there's nothing wrong with the idea. And it's not, <laughs> it's not too late. So look, I'll come back to some of that. Cause I think that, um, you know, the stuff that you reference about class and just a fundamental worldview is um is tremendously interesting. But so you're going to be the prime minister. Um, at this stage of the game, you're a writer. That's not, you know, most young men at Catholic high school in Toowoomba don't start treading down such a sort of difficult and unusual path. Where did you, where did that come from? Why did so you? Mum came from a pretty, um, she probably came from a, a worse background than dad. Dad was sort of like work, like classic working class. Mum was, her dad was, I think he was 50 when she was born and she was the oldest of six and he'd been a World War II vet, um, one veteran and then World War II and then came back and they lived in rural Victoria um, and he they basically lived off his um, his pension, his like veteran, veteran's pension. And so she had a much more sort of like difficult upbringing in the sense that um, there was a fair bit of shit going on. Uh, and so she arrived in Queensland, she moved to Queensland to get away from it all and uh, but she was an extraordinarily, even though I think she she dropped out at the end of grade nine, but she was an extraordinarily just one of those um, autodidact, like just loved reading, loved books, escaped from the sort of shit that was going on at home with reading. And so, yeah, by the time that I came along, she uh, she had the opposite. Dad was a publican. She had the opposite personality. She just, she used to read. She was a speed reader. And so she would read like five or six books a week. Um, she had, because she was a foster care and we had, there's a fair bit going on with some of my siblings in terms of their, their biological parents and stuff. And so it was all through parliament and she would sit there reading the Hansards like um, for fun. Uh, and so she was both really into her bush poetry as well, but um, she was very, for someone who didn't have any like formal education, she was just like very whip smart very sort of shrewd, very witty sort of person. She didn't, she never raised her voice. She never sort of like, um, she didn't really have like a larrikin bone in her body, I guess you would say. But yeah, she, so so I, I guess I just picked that up. It wasn't like she didn't, she was the last person in the world who would try and force anything on anyone. Like, But um, I just sort of, in the same way that I probably picked up, you know, some of the stuff about like masculinity from my dad or from, my brother's like, I probably just picked that up just intuitively from my mum and just seeing her read. And that just became a thing that another sort of part of my personality. And then I don't really remember a time where I didn't sort of think of myself as putting sentences together 
I wasn't called like calling myself a writer, but I was always sort of like thinking about the narrative and narrating what I sort of saw around me happening and trying to make sense of everything because there's quite a bit of stuff going on. You talk a lot about class in both of those, you know, and talking about both your your parents and the whole sort of the whole thing about Ipswich um, and a lot of what you write is grounded in in Ipswich as a place. I just should just tell people that's where I'm from. So this has sort of been a point of discussion between Lek and I for a few years now, and it really is a sort of classic working class town. But the point you make about about your mother, um, you know, who's got this sort of tremendous intellect, but bites into her background you know, didn't particularly get an education, you know, becomes kind of self-taught and becomes a genuine sort of lover of literature. There's a whole bunch of, I think, you know, that's a really classic working class story in itself, that the old idea was that people, people's opportunities were limited by dint of their, their background. So really with both of your parents, you're talking about this kind of overwhelming consciousness of what it is to be working class and, and, that means both fitting into something but being excluded from from something yeah. else. And they, Dad was born in forty nine, Mum was fifty four, so they both m- missed the Whitlam. Yeah, a bit too old for Whitlam. Yeah, they sort of like just just missed it. Um, and so even I think Dad was in that last sort of hurrah where where kids did still drop out at the end of grade eight. Um, yeah. And 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 after that, I, I know a lot of the um, I interviewed his mate Bruce, who was like a, a few years younger. He got to stay to, to the end of grade ten. But yeah, it was, you know, it's something that I can't really relate to because I never, um, I, I wasn't born with a silver spoon in my mouth, but I certainly, um, I, I, I never considered for a second that I wouldn't, you know, finish high school. And and the, the thing about people like my parents was that um, they, yeah, they, they wanted me to go to university. They wanted me to sort of, like they weren't, um, they, they certainly didn't want to remove any of my opportunities because they hadn't got those opportunities. That's what their whole life was about. And not just for me, but for my siblings as well. They were, they had sort of like pretty high expectations in their different sort of ways. So tell us about, um, and look, that's a sort of classic working class thing as well, right? That, that sort of belief that education is the, you know, is the path to financial independence and, and, you know, a better life for your kids. So let's talk about this, um, this essay that you've written um, about, you know, the whole idea of the the larrikin myth that is so hard to pin down but so fundamental to Australian identity. In the essay, as I read it, you argue that, you know, the larrikin myth sort of runs firmly through Australian identity and therefore through Australian politics, but that as often as not, the people who are genuinely identified as larrikins are poses are faking it. Um, they don't come from working class backgrounds. They may not be funny. They're not, um, you know, they're not genuinely anti-establishment. You, you're really arguing that there's this sort of hijacking of larrikinism for the sake of, um, or for the pursuit of political power. I just want you to, I want to ask you to sort of I want to know where that idea came from. I think you argue it really compellingly, but it's look, frankly, not an idea that I've heard before. So where where is that? Where's that coming from? Well, I mean, I, I was a I was a classic example of that. So I've lived it. Like I've 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 been the intellectual uh, teenager who was um, the biggest drinker at the party and the biggest sort of like loudmouth and. And most macho, not macho physically, but just like in terms of my behaviour and stuff. And so, 
Uh, and, and I wrote that in, in my memoir and, and sort of explored that. And I guess all of this sort of this fed out of that. Uh, and I just pl- applied the critique that I applied to myself to Australian politicians. And yeah, like I, if I was nothing, if not, you know, Bob Hawke um, at those parties when I was scaling the beer in, in front of everyone because I was insecure about the fact that I wasn't a good athlete uh, and that I wasn't Alan Langer, who was my cousin. And he's, uh, you know, he's like the archetypal larrikin in the sense that he's, it's completely unselfconscious. Like he's not, there's not, there's not a bone in his body that's going, I, I want to be an Australian larrikin. Like he wouldn't, he wouldn't even know what that sort of. He just is. He just is that thing. Um, and so they, I, I guess the, the labor movement contained a lot of those sort of people. And so I'm not sort of surprised that Hawkey felt a need to, um, to sort of live up to, to that because it, it must have been like, it would have been a similar sort of thing and like very different, but similar in the sense that he would have felt a fair bit of imposter syndrome because the, the trade union movement at that time wasn't a place that was, would have been particularly welcoming for a guy that, um, you know, did a Rhodes scholarship or, or that, yeah, sort of came from a reasonably, he wasn't, didn't come from like a super rich background, but um, certainly wasn't uh, sort of like the son of a coal miner. Yeah. You argue, you really do argue that this sort of, you know, the hijacking of this larrikin thing kind of goes right back and you talk about um, Henry Lawson and Banjo Patterson, you know, kind of not being the real deal themselves but creating the original narrative on this. And then I think you argue you make this really interesting argument that between Hawke and Keating, um, you know, and this is not untrue, that, you know, Hawke was essentially, as you say, kind of middle class and, and you know, genuinely privileged but um, through his behaviour, created this affinity with working people and working men, whereas Paul Keating, who, you know, genuinely came from a working-class background, left school, was not a Rhodes Scholar, um, was always sort of treated with some distrust, that the, the whole sort of Xenia suits and French clocks meant that that affinity couldn't couldn't be created. Do you think that there is, is that a kind of lostness in Australian identity that, that we almost feel, you know, more comfortable with um, with the fake than with the real deal. Well, totally, and and it's so much easier to be the to be the the shtick than to be the um, especially with the once the sort of the news cycle started to heat up more, and and um, it's a lot easier to make images of of people who do sort of conform to a traditional idea of what we we see as larrikins. But yeah, I I just like I'm just totally fascinated by the both of them, and I think that they're both you know just great figures to write and think about because they're so, so different. But um, yeah, I, I just love that idea. Like there was that quote from George Megalogenus where he said that he he made the realisation that Hawke actually had no interest in the football at all. He, <laughs> he was interested in gambling on it, but he wasn't like a, but if from the outside looking in, you, if you would have asked anyone like who's the biggest footy fan in Australian political history, well, everyone would go, well, Hawke, he loved the, he loved the footy. He always, and he, um, a lot of them do, but he just sort of like took it to the the nth degree, uh, and it was smart. It was smart politically, and and it sort of created an, an affinity uh, with people. But yeah, it's just interesting that yeah, this this guy uh, in in Keating, and and I guess I was trying to work through my own ideas about like I probably saw uh, as a young as, as a younger sort of guy. I I loved Hawk, and you know, Dad always used to say like I. Oh, like Hawks a man and like, you know, uh, the, I think there's a part in my book where he goes like, uh, I'm like, well, who, who's better out of the two of them when I'm like 11 or something. And he's like, oh, um, 
who would you rather have a beer with? And yeah, obviously you'd rather have a beer with Bob Hawke than, uh, than Paul Keating. Well, I, I guess at least on the surface, um, because I, 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 I can't imagine that he punished too many beers, <laughs> Paul Keating. But um, I'm just, I didn't want to really say that either of them were right or wrong or bad or good or anything like that. I was just like, this, these are just like fascinating characters. And oh, it's, a great, it's a great debate that you can have forever. Yeah. There's no, there's no end to it. So you sort of create this idea that um, that a whole bunch of Australian identity and then Australian politics is is rooted in a myth, trading in a myth that, you know, to some degree is nonsense um, <laughs> and oftentimes is, you know, hijacked by, by people in pursuit of, of power. Um, and coming from that fundamental idea, you know, where, where the essay is not totally about politics but, it, you know, very much gets where it goes in the end. And you talk about Scott Morrison as the sort of latest iteration of that fraud being put upon the Australian people. I just want you to talk about that a little bit. Um, Not everyone will have yet read your essay, so I want you to talk about essentially what you've written in this idea that, that, you know, ScoMo is is basically an invented character. Well, it was a totally confected character. And this is the interesting thing that I did when I was interviewing people is that, and even for myself to a certain extent, couldn't actually work out like the, a lot of the people that I spoke to um, academics or just normal people couldn't actually identify how political parties use the Larrikin idea. Like it just wasn't sort of, it wasn't obvious because Scott Morrison has never called himself a Larrikin. Um, and the, the two sort of breakthrough moments was I spoke to my brother, John, who comes from a really like, you know, like the underclass. He was a he was a he was a foster kid and didn't go to university and is sort of like re- quite resentful about the way that some of my other siblings talked to him about political issues because um, he didn't go to university. And so the first breakthrough moment was he said, um, I, "I was just asking about what what it is about Scott Morrison that he likes." And he said, "Scott Morrison, he's a classic larrikin. He loves a beer. He loves the footy. He's just he's one of us." And so I was like, "Well, that that's sort of like." That's what that's what the whole persona is pursuing. And then the other moment was Lockie Harris, who was um, Kevin Rudd's press secretary. Basically, and this is right at the end of the writing process. Like Danda, this went through the entire process of like diagnosing how political parties tap into the, the Larrikin myth, and even him himself and through his work and sort of said like, look, you know, I'm just as guilty of it. Like political apparatus apparatchiks think that everyone in a marginal seat is, you know, like a character from Wake and Fright, um, that all they want in out of a prime minister is someone who goes to the footy and eats a meat pie and, and does that sort of thing. And so Morrison being the ultimate marketing guy knew all of this came from a, didn't come from a super privileged background. His dad was a copper, but ended up doing quite well for himself was ended up being a, a the mayor of Waverley in, in the Eastern suburbs, went to a selective public school, uh, in the eastern suburbs of Sydney, called Sydney Boys High, which is in the GPS down here, uh, and so he he grew up playing rugby union. No, nothing wrong with like my, a lot of my mates play rugby union. I should highlight that there's, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But then and um, came from a quite a religious background. Went went through to a bunch of different churches throughout his adult, adult life. Ended up joining um, Hillsong and then becoming a Pentecostal and joining a different Pentecostal church in Cronulla when he went there. And when he got to Cronulla, the interesting thing is that he didn't immediately become ScoMo. It actually mm. took him it took him a while to get there. So that's why, like, that's he didn't immediately jump on the Sharks 
uh, bandwagon, even though they were, they were doing all right at the time when he first when he first moved there, which was pretty rare because they have a pretty rocky history. Uh, and it was really, at least in the in the way that I've sort of like broken it down, it was really 2015, and then 2016 was the year that he went from being Scott John Morrison, who was sort of initially when he got to camp and he, his maiden speeches, he basically presented himself as like a liberal Kevin Rudd. He was like the Christian bureaucrat who was quite sort of like uh, in the image of his mentor, which is Bruce Baird. Um, so like religious and uh, and a liberal, but quite sort of like talks about like how government has a role to play in people's life, quoted Bono um, about African poverty, uh, quoted Desmond Tutu. Um, and so... This is in his maiden speech. This, this is in his maiden speech. And then literally the it, it he he leapfrogs a bunch of people because a lot of them retire. Um, Costello, Downer, Howard's out. He leap got in, in as a shadow ministry quite early. And then the moment that it all sort of starts to change is that the GFC happens, Turnbull gets knifed by Abbott, and then Morrison comes in. And that's the sort of point where he's he goes from being this sort of compassionate conservative to being like the right wing rot wheeler that we sort of like saw throughout that period. Uh, and then just took it, like took it and ran with it and like went, and, and, but at that point still hadn't really adopted the cultural mannerisms fully of this ScoMo person that he became. And that was more closer to, I think he, they got into government. He sort of like was so successful in this role as a right wing rot wheeler, but then sort of like looked around and was like, this probably isn't going to get like, I've been really successful tapping into this fear that Australian people have about asylum seekers, but that's not necessarily making me likable. And, and, and this is a guy that he's got his eyes on the prime ministership at that point. He's, he's being considered as a possible, um, as Turnbull weighs up the numbers, Morrison's very much like in the fray as like being a potential alternative, but his profile just isn't quite high enough yet to be considered the heir apparent to Abbott if he falls over. So he got moves to social services and starts to soften his image um, considerably, changes his language somewhat, start, starts doing the curry with, with Jen sort of act and, and then the daggy dad sort of stuff. And then the next thing that happens is that, he, that they win the election. 2016 happens, which is uh, sort of like this watershed year in the way that like everyone around the world was going like, but what's happening with the working class? Um, they've, voted for Brexit, they've elected Donald Trump. Coincidentally, this is a year that Cronulla, the Cronulla Sharks win their first premiership, and it's the first year that Morrison sort of fully jumps on board with the Sharks, and he becomes their number one uh, number one ticket holder at the start of 2016, so his timing's impeccable. The Cronulla Sharks, by virtue of not being a particularly successful team, they'd never won a comp before, they didn't have a heap of gatekeepers around them to sort of go, this guy isn't the world's biggest Cronulla Sharks fan. And so they they like they elevated him to he became like the um, the number one sharks fan in in the public identification and all this might sound trivial and unimportant like what does it matter about sport but then he combines that uh, with his sudden identification with coal and um, sort of smuggling a lump of coal into parliament and then he eventually obviously succeeds Malcolm Turnbull as as the leader of the Liberals as the Prime Minister and at that point it sort of like all locks into place. And this persona that he's sort of been work, tapping away at creating becomes a super refined sort of sleek um, figure who, you know, a lot of people see it as a con job or as um, 
and, and and even at the time, you know, listened to the way that he spoke and sort of thought, oh, this guy's a complete dumbass um, rugby league fan who loves Cole. Uh, and, and that's exactly what he want, wanted mm-hmm. people to think. He wanted progressives to think that, but he also wanted um, sort of like socially conservative but maybe historically working class voters in the regions of New South Wales and Queensland to sort of see that as well. And um, it was incredibly effective. And I think it crystallised the difference between uh, the Liberal Party and the Labor Party on blue collar jobs in a way that um, Turnbull certainly never did that. Uh, if that doesn't happen, like a lot of those voters and a lot of that swing that happened against against Labor didn't necessarily go directly to the Liberal Party, but it awakened in, in tandem with Clive Palmer, in tandem with News Limited, awakened this sort of idea that people in these regions felt about being under siege from progressives and, yeah, it, it allowed them to take their vote away from Labor and sort of either go to the Liberals or more commonly to, to sort of go to One Nation and send their preferences back to the Liberal Party. So the fundamental argument, look, I think I think what you've done in this essay is, um, look, just a sort of tremendously interesting and well thought through exploration of that that character development or caricature development of um, Morrison's. And I think people will find it really interesting to read because, I, I, you know, there's no doubt that there's an awareness, you know, we didn't get Scotty from marketing from nowhere. There's no doubt that there's a sort of public awareness that, you know, there is something confected about this character. But what you've done really well is explore the sort of systematic evolution of this this character. Um, what do you think that it says, though, about Australians that there is, you know, you talk about your, your brother John who says that he'd like to have a beer with Scott Morrison and probably isn't, you know, particularly interested in the idea that he's faking it. Do you think that says something about, you know, kind of our own low expectations of government and have we lost the idea that, you know, government is supposed to be of substance and that government is supposed to, well, at least from a progressive perspective, genuinely make people's lives better. Does the caricature work because there's a lack of hope um, for policy substance? Totally. And this is all happening, like that. that's the thing with the Brexit and Trump connection. This is all happening within this broader evolution of people feeling um, sort of widespread distrust in government, um, working class people feeling a sense of disillusionment, not not all of them, certainly. And, and like, uh, I think the, the Australian Labor Party has actually been quite successful compared to some overseas social democratic parties at maintaining, you know, mm. what we consider like, like genuine working class people. Um, but there has been this, yeah, sort of like environment, which which he sort of arrived in and, and then tapped into. And, and, and I think that the reason that it works is that there is such a genuine distrust with 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 government and the, the idea that the gov- government can improve your life and um, that's where why a lot of the scare campaigns work so well as well. Like the, there's, we went from what was a, the public trust in in government around Rudd and Howard was like in the eighties, I think eighty percent, and I, I think by the time that Morrison was around, it, it sort of had dropped down like it almost halved. Maybe it's it's either in the forties or maybe even in the like sort of low fifties. Um, just off the top of my head. Yeah. And so there, this, it became like everyone sort of got, nobody believes that politicians can, can can improve their lives. And so they're going to vote for the, like not all of them, but like enough, enough. of them voted for the guy who said, 
you know, I hate the Canberra bubble. I hate politics. Like essentially saying I hate politicians. He didn't surround himself with other politicians. It was a really mm-hmm. sort of cunning manoeuvre. Like it, um, the Labor at the last election, it was very much like the campaign from central casting in terms of it brought all the former leaders together, united Rudd and Gillard again, it united Keating and Hawke again. Um which was sort of like a really beautiful like campaign, but it sort of just, I guess, missed that the zeitgeist of that nobody, like that's not what people are actually looking for. That's not what people want. Um, and so he ran this sort of outsider's campaign against where he turned himself into the guy that was sort of like anti-establishment uh, and who was going to stick it to the, the sort of like Canberra bubble and to the toffs. And obviously which is a complete hypocrisy because there is no one who's more at the heart of the Canberra bubble over the past decade than Scott Morrison. Like he is like Donald Trump's past hero. Well, and and, and even more so than Trump, because with with Trump, there is some genuine sense that he is like an outsider to the -hmm. Republican movement. Like Scott Morrison is like a diehard liberal. Like he, he does believe, I think that he's an extremely pragmatic guy and that makes him dangerous, but I, I, I think that one thing when we sometimes talk about him not believing anything, I, I think he knows exactly what he believes. And I think what makes him such a dangerous politician is that he goes, okay, I know exactly what I believe, but I'm willing to sacrifice. I'm willing to sacrifice what I, exactly what I believe to win government for my side. And mm-hmm. that's something that, um, you know, I, I don't think the Labor Party should <laughs> go to quite the same extent that he has, but that's something that we can learn from or that progressives can learn from in terms of like, about uh, about politics and what conservatives have done really well, really post Howard, like they've basically gone, okay, here's what we believe, but here's what we need to do to to win power, and they've sort of just pursued that to the to the nth degree. Let's go to um, so one of the points you make is, which I think is sort of beautifully put together, um, and probably right, is that you've you've sort of got this scomo character who you know is actually a sort of rugby following person of privilege from the eastern suburbs but becomes beer swilling scomo from the sharks um now in competition competition with this albo character who is a genuinely you know genuinely comes from a working class background and so how do those two you know how how's that gonna play out when you've you've sort of got the real versus the the fake um one of the things that is very much happening i think now is um, there is pushback from, you know, coming from the Albanese forces and the Labor side against these two ideas. Um, One idea comes from the sort of green left, the idea that, you know, you're not going to win because you're not pure enough. And then on the other side, you talk about Ipswich, and I'm sympathetic to that, obviously, you know, this idea that Labor sold us all out with deregulation. What's happening now is that the labour forces are quite actively, I think, pushing back against both of those ideas to create a sort of pathway to power through the middle. I guess my my question to you is, is that the right, in your view, and from the work that you've done, is that the right approach? You know, can, can the elbow character and person beat a fake? And what does... You know what does Labor need to do to to get there? Is it, in your view, positioning itself in the right spot, or is there a bit more to it? Oh yeah, I'm not a political scientist or a political sure. strategist, so I certainly wouldn't, um, you know, see myself as uh, that I can tell the Labor Party what to do. Like I like there's so there's so many people who are more 
knowledgeable about winning political campaigns who haven't been able to do that. So I'm certainly not going to present myself <laughs> as some sort of like oracle from um, from the Queen from Queensland who can tell everyone what what's going to like win back those Queensland seats. But yeah, it, it, there is like a I think that he um, a lot of it's been quite subtle as well because uh, he's elbows spent an extraordinary amount of time in Queensland and sort of this going through those central Queensland seats got a bit of pushback for it, especially at the start about that um, Labor was selling the party out to coal miners and and stuff. And I guess the interesting thing about the the whole sort of coal thing is that Labor has lost a lot, like started losing the miners in the late sixties, like the research shows. And and by the time, I think by 98, they'd like coal mining, coal mining was like, voters were like a negative for the Labor Party. So it's not so much actually winning back the coal miners. It's like a lot of people who want to like are sort of like tantalised by the idea of of being a coal miner, of getting one of those jobs or, or just the way that it's sort of like is emblematic of this idea that the Labor Party doesn't respect jobs and, and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. So, yeah, yeah that's, I, the, it's, that's, that's the sort of sellout branch of the argument, you know, that kind of, um, oh, well, Labor used to be with us, but then there was deregulation and whatnot. Sorry, I cut you off midstream. Yeah, so I, and I think that, um, yeah, it's, a, it's an extraordinarily difficult balancing act, but um, I think that the the tone, which sometimes it the, the criticism is that, um, that I, I sort of hear of Albanese is that he doesn't believe in anything and that he's become too much of a pragmatist uh, and that he's not really saying anything a lot of the time. And and so, and I think that that's partly because he he's not, I actually don't think that he's a chess beating larrikin that, that maybe people were, were hoping. Like, I think that, that is like, I, I think that he's been in politics for a long time now and he's, become who he is like he's a like sort of serious politician he's actually Um, a pretty thoughtful guy yeah who's sort of very focused on process and i guess the 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 end question is how that plays out and uh i think that it's all about tone which is a very hard thing to get right but there is like i i made the point about about john howard not because i want you know the labor party to recreate john howard but it was just so interesting to sort of go back through the history of the way that he was seen and I, i like i wasn't cognizant of it at the time because I was like four or something, but going back through the history of the way he was seen pre-96 election where um, a lot of the commentary was that he didn't believe in anything and that he was uncharismatic. That seemed to be like the two dominant themes of the criticisms. And, and there was like this moment just before the election on Four Corners where, yeah, they, they sort of said, oh, uh, you've lost all of your beliefs on the Republic. You've lost all of your beliefs on p- private health care. You don't stand for anything anymore. And then he sort of just like had a raw smile and, and said that. Oh, um, yeah, we'll, we'll sort of see what happens. And then, so obviously the, his aim was to win the election and to, to get into power. And there, as I said, I, I, I don't think that we should, that progressives should replicate the playbook of John Howard, but it's just important to remember that this idea that Labor can't win with a leader who is seen as like uncharismatic might not necessarily be true. I, I, don't, I don't know whether that's the most in, it, I think it's entirely fair to criticise the Labor Party for their policy positions. And there's certain things that I feel fairly disillusioned about at times with the Labor Party and in terms of like their tax policies and, and that sort of thing. But I think that sometimes some of the criticisms can miss the mark of what might actually appeal to people in the regions and suburbs. So I don't think are looking they're not looking for a messiah uh, in terms of like a Gough Whitlam. Um, yeah, that's, that's, the, that's the sort of convoluted <laughs> answer that. Um. Your writing is really defined by coming from Queensland and, you know, a lot of what you're trying to, um, obviously, obviously I'm sympathetic to this, um, 
a lot of what you're trying to do is present a perspective which we don't get a lot in the mainstream media. I mean, I think the country does remain, you know, and, and the sort of civic discourse does remain very much a sort of Sydney, Canberra, Melbourne dominated thing. Why do you think that is? And well, you talk, for instance, about the um, anti-Adani, Bob Brown and the anti-Adani convoy and, you know, just how kind of seriously disastrous that was in the last federal campaign. What do you think it is that so much of the commentary is missing about Queensland when it seeks to reduce the place and um, reduce the people to something sort of inexplicably dumb? What do you reckon other commentators are not getting that you can see? It's it's hard to I guess even articulate because it's just my lived uh, like it's just my lived experience of, of having like a chip on my shoulder because I came from Queensland and like growing up with something like state of origin which seems like a superficial or trivial thing is especially in Victoria where they where, where you wouldn't really get the get an understanding of, about that sort of state identity mm-hmm. uh, and so yeah it's just something that I know in, intuitively and and it's something that I like I've been I've felt like a I'm a redneck from Queensland I felt like yeah quite self-conscious about that and I've overcompensated for that at times uh and I've overcompensated for that by shitting on the people that where I came from and the people that I know and, and that sort of thing and so I've been through my own process of discovery I'm certainly not like the you know someone here to tell everyone that like I that I'm the most enlightened person in the world and I know how to how to always get it right but there just is a it, it just is a thing about Queensland and I and I think that it's not so much that it's just about Queensland. It's just that Queensland has a lot more of, is, is a decentralised state and it has a lot more of these people who don't feel connected to that Melbourne, Sydney, Canberra type network. Um, and so I think that there's pockets of that all over the, uh, over the country and like would uh, apply to regional areas elsewhere. It's just that we've got a lot more probably regional people in Queensland and, uh, and a really sort of specific state identity. And so it, it's it's not that that doesn't play out elsewhere. It's just that there's more a lot more um, seats in a, in federal parliament are those seats in regional Queensland running up the the coastline. And so I, I think that that's why it's politically important. It's not just a Queensland thing, but it's it's just that there's um, there's more of us maybe than than um, than elsewhere. Well, and you've got this you know just fundamentally odd thing, and you, you don't talk about this in your essay, but that you know the Labor Party has really established itself you know, very comfortably as a sort of natural party of government at a state level in Queensland, has been in government for most of the last 30 years, but the Conservatives are are absolutely the natural party of, of government at a federal level. So there's also this kind of, you know, weird and fascinating disconnect. I just want to, um, before we round up, I just want to talk about your own family a little bit. You, you write in the essay, and this was, um, there was an extract of this in The Guardian on the weekend, about your own father, um, you know, I'm sorry if it's hard to talk about given that he, he subsequently passed away, but your own father's mm-hmm. idea that he might run as a federal Labor candidate and your own kind of instinct as a young man yourself that kind of what would he know and things had, had moved on. And you're, you're right, I think, beautifully. And, you know, you say, here I was kind of bringing this, this is not your word, but bringing this conceit to the table and thinking, you know, what would a man who's, spent his life in small business know about the economy and what would a, what would a foster carer know about social justice? You talk about sort of trying to hold those cosmopolitan and parochial ideas in one person and find a, 
spot that brings both of those things together that, you know, has a progressive worldview whilst trying to understand where other people are coming from. And a lot of your writing is really about that, is trying to sort of marry up those things. My question is, I guess, you know, do you think that you can do it in one person? Is that where your your writing is trying to get you to? Do you think you can do it? And do you think we can do it as a country that we can marry up some of those fundamental divides? Well, yeah. And and, and I guess my point in in that anecdote isn't that... um, you know, dad, dad was just, he was just a like, like small time local labor branch mm. president in Toowoomba. He wasn't like a mover and shaker by any means. Uh, who knows whether he actually ever would have even thrown his hat into the ring. I think he was, he, he'd sort of occasionally sort of mentioned the idea that he might run for council in Toowoomba or, or run for state parliament. Um, and, and it was always sort of just a, a thought bubble. And so the idea wasn't that my dad was like the, is, the next is a, thing. Yeah, he's like the Messiah and the, that's who the Labor Party you know, the Labor Party just needs to fill parliament with um, blokes who didn't go to university. That, that's not my point. My point is about my my internalised classism about about the sort yeah. of people that I think should should have been in parliament. And so I think that that can be applied right across the spectrum. There's a lot of people that we don't sort of see parliament as a place for, and I, I think that the Labor Party have done a, a lot better job at addressing that to a certain extent. I think that they still have a long way to go. Mm. Um, but... Yeah, I, I I just wanted to look at the way that I that my own to to sort of out myself as being someone yeah. who who did have this conceit about myself and and the way that I I sort of thought that um, I just didn't think that my dad sort of got politics, which sounds really arrogant, but like that he he was just a bit naive about about it or whatever. And then obviously history shows that um, he probably knew a shitload more about politics than I did, uh, even though I'd read. Um, the right books and stuff. And so, as I said, my, my point isn't that he was like the, the Labor Party's messiah or that people like him are the Labor Party's messiah. My point is more just about being able to see that the you don't need like a a PhD in politics to sort of get your opinion across or, or be heard and that if you extrapolate that idea to a wider um, then that that can help try and fix this tone problem that the Labor Party has. The answer isn't that the Labor Party should just capitulate on every on every mm. issue to people in regional and and uh, rural Australia. It's that they should um, just keep in mind all of these complexities and all of these peculiarities about these different areas and about what people think and how they how they want to be listened to and respected. And 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 that's all that's all I'm saying. I'm not saying that. Yeah, I'm, I'm not providing a a a, um, a recipe for winning an election. Uh, although, yeah, ultimately, I've tried to unify those things within myself, uh, and I and I think that 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 can be a useful thing for people within. You know, it's not even about the Labor Party or progressive politics, just in general. Like, I, like I would say that it's re- important to remember the humanity of people who you might disagree with, and I certainly disagree with my brother John a lot, but I love him to death, and I talk to him a few times a week, and um, yeah, as I said, that's not going to win Labor the next election on its own, but it's a sort of like fundamental, I think it's a pretty fundamental thing. Look, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I've um, I've told you this little anecdote before. When I was, um, it's been nearly 20 years ago now, when I was uh, a, a new member for Ipswich, I went to a function at a workers' club at Surrey Hills and all the people there were talking about Pauline Hanson. And I said, oh, you know, this is what it's really about. And I, you know, argued the case that it was about economics and and this and that. And um, 
none of the young people, there's sort of young lefties at this table, wanted to listen to what I had to say. It's not just blokes either. Like my sister, Rebecca, who I didn't go into in the essay because I sort of just, um, I didn't want to have too many personal threads running running through it. But she lives in rural New South Wales on a farm, um, dropped out at the end of grade 10, had had a kid at 17, uh, husband's a carpet layer. Uh, they now have five kids. Certainly, yeah, like they pretty hard to make ends meet with five kids, like with, mm. for anyone, let alone with five kids. And so, and she's um, she's Aboriginal as well. She voted for the National Party at the last election. Like that's just an anecdotal thing. I, mm. you know, I, I can't extrapolate from that the entire answers about why people vote conservatively. Her husband and her husband voted for One Nation. And so um, I think that, as I say in the essay, I think that race certainly plays a massive part in Australian politics. I don't want to discount the, the way that conservatives have used race, but I, I, I also don't, if, if the answer of progressives is, is to say anyone who, who votes conservatively is racist, well then it's like the game's, the game's sort of over because it's yeah. just like that the, there's, there's no other way to sort of connect with these people and make them feel like that you respect what their aspirations are for them and for their families. Yeah. And look, your fundamental people. Your fundamental point is, you know, as I read it, is um, listen to people, like people, take an interest in where they're coming from. And um, we're getting close to time, so I'll just about wrap up. But I think that's the real contribution of your essay. You know, what you do is sort of put some um, some flesh on these bones. You're seeking to take a perspective from you know, from your own lived lived experience, um, from your own experience of class and your own experience growing up in Queensland and say, this is what it's all about. And I, not many other, you know, or a friend of mine said to me this morning, oh, yeah, I really like Lech Blaine's writing because he's the only one, he's the only person who's writing about Queensland who actually gets it. <laughs> I think that's a, and I, look, I agree. Um, I think you're making a really wonderful contribution. So, I'm going to commend the essay to people. It's also, look, the thing we haven't touched on, and I reread it this morning, the other thing we haven't touched on is that it's really funny. Um, <laughs> so even if you don't, you read this essay and you don't agree, agree with um, everything that, that Lex says, it will it will reward the reader in humour alone. Lex, thanks for, for the brief chat today and thanks for people who have sent in questions, some of which I've drawn on in um, in sort of the questions that I've that I've asked. This is a wonderful contribution to the Australian social and political debate. Um, no one else is talking in an informed way about class or about Queensland. And I think this is a really important and thoughtful and well-timed contribution. So readers go and read it and um, like more power to you in terms of whatever you choose to write next. Thank you. Yeah, thanks a lot, Rachel. I really appreciate it. Cheers. Thank you for joining us on Deep North, a podcast by the McKell Institute Queensland. My name's Rachel Nolan. Our producer is Charles Pigeon. To find out more about what we do, follow us on Twitter at McKell Institute. And if you enjoyed the show and you care about serious, deeper analysis of Queensland politics, please like and review Deep North to help spread the word.